The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, our children can be dismissed, ages four and five, uh, to your right, to my left. And uh, as they are heading out, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25 this morning. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Uh, i got to tell you, as we were singing the, the songs that we sang this morning, and, and particularly the lyrics um, of the song that called us to cast our burdens on Him, that He, he calls us to, to just bring us, everyone who's weary, heavy laden, just bring your burden. I, I had a moment this week, it's probably good for you to know that your pastor has these moments where he just freaks out a little bit, uh, you know, because uh, sometimes we, we can be up here and things can look polished at times, and maybe, maybe they don't ever look polished, and you're thinking, what are you talking about? Uh, but I had one of those moments this, this weekend where I just had a little freak out moment. Um, between everything else that I've got going on with studying and, and man, just really poured into studying this week for, for this sermon and, and taking care of the church. And I'm, I'm in school, and so I've, I've got uh, a deadline. I've got about 2,500 pages I've got to get read and, and, and a bunch of writing I have to do and all this stuff. In the middle of all that, um, our, our washing machine valve begins to leak. And it's behind the sheetrock, as far as I know, and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm in there, and I'm cutting out. This is on Friday night. I'm cutting out sheetrock from behind the washer and, and uh, trying to find this thing. I've, I've got Brian Curran on speed dial and all this. You know, it's just, I mean, and, I'm, and, and I just don't have time for this. And, I'm, and I remember I'm walking out through the front yard uh, to the water main to shut the water off. And I'm just, I'm just freaking out. And I've really just spoken to my wife in a way that I should not have spoken to her. And so, honey, I'm sorry. Um, but um, I remember walking to the yard and just saying, God, I don't have time for this. But, Lord, you know what I'm going through. So, God, I just cast this burden on you. And, Lord, would you just help me to rest in you? Lord, help, help me to know, God, that you'll see everything through. Lord, that everything will have its time and its place. Lord, would you help me to be efficient? Would you help me to be peaceful in you? And I remember getting to the water main and shutting that thing off and just walking back to the house and, you know, still had a lot, you know, that I had to do and still didn't know what I was doing at all. Uh, but, uh, but the burden, I think, had lifted because I had given it away. And that's, that's the invitation that we have in the Lord. We sometimes spiritualize this invitation to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and we only want to relegate it to our sinfulness and, and the debt of our sin and the wrath that we deserve for our sin. But I think in those everyday water leaks and everything else, God says, come to me. Come to me. Don't stress over that. Come to me. Cast your burden on me. And so that's, that's just a good reminder for me, a practical reminder for me as we were singing that song today, to connect what we do in here in what we title worship with what we do out there that should be acts of worship as well. Amen? Let me just uh, read for us this passage, follow along the First Peter, uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Servants, or probably better rendered, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows 
while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I have to tell you, I'll confess to you um, before I begin the sermon this morning, uh, I didn't like this text this week. Um, As I studied this week, I found myself grieved at the awful horror of slavery. Um, I I found myself as I was studying and and studying this passage and finding out what's being said here and and looking at what we understand to be slavery and, and the way that we know it, I found myself sickened by the brutality and the arrogance of, of slavery. Uh, I found myself in an angry position, balking at Peter's imperative for slaves to submit to their masters with all respect. If you study a little bit of the history of slavery in America and then come to this passage and hear Peter just almost casually say, slaves submit to your masters with all respect, not just the good ones, but the ones who are unjust as well. It brought up, it welled up this, this sort of just revolting against what was being told to me here in the Bible this week. Now, not to the point where, hear me, I come to this book knowing that this is the Word of God and that if somebody's going to bend, it's not going to be the Word, it's going to have to be me. And so I knew that the whole time, but I'm coming to this and I'm saying, God, I don't like this very much. Lord, I don't like what this says right here. And it caused me to ask some questions, and those questions will guide our sermon today. The first one is this. Does God condone slavery? Why doesn't the Bible just condemn slavery? This becomes an excuse for some people not to believe the gospel. You know, they, they come to this and they read passages like this and they say, a God who condones slavery and asks slaves to simply just submit to your masters with all respect. I don't know that I can believe in a God like this. So this becomes a, a hindrance, a barrier, an impediment to faith in the gospel at times. And on one hand, they are right to raise that objection. The Bible never explicitly condemns slavery in all its forms. It never gives this blanket, just condemning of the the practice of slavery without a qualifier. On the other hand, though, we need to know more. We need to understand what is going on here in the time that Peter is writing. 
we cannot be guilty of, and this is something we must guard against. We cannot read not only the Bible, but we, we should not read anything, any type of history, in such a way that we bring what is true in this era, this time, and we just superimpose it into another era. We must look at the context, look at the history, and see what is, what is happening in this, in this time and, and in this institution. So the question that comes out of this is, is all slavery the same? Well, most people, when they think about slavery, when they hear that, in our context, in America, they think of this Western colonial American or, or British slave trade industry. This, this slave, slavery that most of us think about, there are three things that I think the Bible condemns and is explicit in its condemnation of this type of slavery. The, the slavery that we think about, this American slavery, was race-based. It looked at a person's color of skin, and it said, you are not the same as me, therefore I have the right to own you. And it was race-based, and this is wrong, and the Bible just categorically dispels this and, and condemns this. It was race-based. The, the, the slave industry as you and I know it, the, this colonial American British slave trade, was on the principle of men were stolen they were kidnapped, and they were owned as property with no possibility of manumission or purchasing their own freedom. They were just stolen from where they lived and made to be slaves. Another characteristic of this American slavery is that those slaves, once they were owned, is they were not, most of the time, they were not permitted to read, uh, not to, to, to learn to read or to write. Uh, for fear of the owner um, of, of uh, kind of being outdone sometimes, but slaves were not permitted to learn to read or write. And I would say to you, I, it's one thing for me to stand up here and say the Bible categorically condemns this type of slavery, but hear me on this. The Bible's not silent here. It does condemn this. Let me give you a couple of places, and there are more, but let me just give you two. Exodus twenty one sixteen says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So God calls for the death penalty for slavery. Now, this is an Old Testament passage. If you fast forward to a New Testament passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul there writing to Timothy, he lumps in what it means to be ungodly, and one of the characteristics is this man-stealing or slavery. Listen to uh, verses 8 through 10 of 1 Timothy 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers or man-stealers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So don't, don't think that God is silent, that the Bible is silent on condemning this American Western slavery that you and I think of. All slavery is not the same. When Peter here is writing and he says, slaves submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the good but also to the unjust, he is not referring to this American Western colonial slavery that you and I think of. He's talking about this Greco-Roman world, uh, this slavery that existed there that is very different. Let me just show you how it's different. 
the Greco-Roman slaves, you couldn't recognize them by the color of their skin. It would have been, it would have been impossible to do so. It wasn't like there were uh, black people or white people or whatever the case may be, and they, that, that group of people were slaves. Everyone in that, that world could have been a slave, no matter the color of their skin. They were not recognized by the color of their skin. And rather than being kidnapped and forced into slavery, many people in that world became slaves because they sold themselves into slavery to pay off debt. You have to think about the economy of what was going on in the world, and there was no bankruptcy system. And in the, in the absence of a bankruptcy system of laws, men and women resorted to what they had to, and they would often sell themselves into slavery. And they, it, was, it was a way to avoid going to prison. They could pay off their debts without having to go to prison. Another way that it's different, the Greco-Roman slavery from American and Western colonial slavery is owners encourage their slaves to become educated. Examples of this exist in our Bibles you look at the example of Joseph, who uh, was a slave in Egypt in Potiphar's house and, and rose all the way to second in command in all of Egypt. Daniel rose all the way to second in command of, in Babylon from the position of slavery. And so it was just seen as good business to encourage a slave under your ownership to educate themselves, to, to, uh, to, to improve themselves. Many slaves were workshop managers, they were household managers, they were accountants and tutors and personal secretaries and sea captains and even physicians. Many owners brought on a slave who would be the family physician and take care of their entire family when one of them became ill. Some, had, some slaves had considerable influence and social power even over freeborn people, these Roman citizens, who just happened to not be connected to someone with as much clout. If, if a slave's owner was an important person in society, that slave could have more influence over a free person who just was a nobody in the society. Uh, they were permitted to, uh, to, to earn and save money. Many bought their own freedom. Slavery was a way for them to improve their station in life. Um, in the same way, the way that we probably should think about this is not like a, this American Western colonial slavery, but more like, for instance, a person who goes to college for free because they've signed up to spend five or six years with the armed forces upon graduation, or like a person who receives an athletic scholarship to play a sport, football or baseball or something else, or or, or not necessarily athletics, but they go to school and earn this education, but they're working it off as they're there. And this is the way slavery was, it existed as Peter is writing. But here's what I want to say to you. Despite the differences, there were three classes of people in ancient Rome. As much as we want to whitewash this, and I don't want to whitewash this at all, we, we don't want to simply say, okay, slavery, what we think of is not the same, and we, shouldn't, we should just get over that. It still existed in a, in, a, in a city, in a part of the world where there were sinners, and there were these classes of people. The first class was the, were the Roman citizens. They had full rights and protection under the law. The second class were those who were freedmen 
who had, who had been able to purchase their freedom, they had restricted protections under the law, but they still enjoyed a great deal of autonomy. They didn't really answer to anyone. They could come and go as they pleased. They did whatever they wanted to do. They had been made free, but they weren't quite to the level of this Roman citizen. And then there were slaves. And slaves under this Roman law had no rights. They had no protections under the law whatsoever. And this gave way, made room for, those unjust slave owners. So how should we apply this passage today? My, my objective was not to come in here and say to you, okay, slavery here is not the same as slavery that we think of. I mean, how do, how do we apply this passage today? When, when Peter says, slaves, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the good but also to the unjust, what do we do with this? Well, one thing I would tell you is that slavery still exists in our world today. And not slavery like I've described in the Greco-Roman world. I'm talking about slavery that resembles more of this American Western colonial slavery than it does the Greco-Roman kind. Right now, there are, there are people who are stolen every single day and forced to work in sex trade industries and all sorts of things all around the world. And you may think it's other places in the world, but parts of our own country are some of the hot spots where people are being taken and, and sold into slavery. So for that matter, if slavery still exists in the world today, then we should also we, we, sh- we should be deeply grieved over the sins of those who wrongly used Scripture to justify this race-based man-stealing that treated men and women created in the image of God as chattel or as property. We should should be grieved over that. Do you know that there have been pastors in history, there have been great theologians in history who have taken the Bible and taken verses like this and used them to justify this American form of slavery. We should be grieved over that. We should be repentant over that. We should also, though, knowing that slavery still exists today, we should preach the gospel like never before. We should also preach and pray and labor to, to the end, uh, to end the modern slavery that resembles this American slavery. We should, we should long for it to be gone away. But here's, here's the reality. You and I probably have, uh, well, not probably, we, we've never been a slave and we've never owned slaves. There's not, there's not any of us who are who are here openly involved in this slave trade industry. So how do we apply this? Probably the closest thing that you and I can come to is to, to having an unjust master is perhaps working under a mean boss or having a, a harsh teacher or professor. And I think that's the way I think that you and I probably need to look at this today if we're going to have any impact on our own lives. So the question that drove this in the beginning, does God condone slavery in the way that we see slavery and think of it most often, God would say absolutely not. But in this particular world system where slavery existed in a much different way, in a way that helped those who were in hard times to improve their station of life, God begins to regulate it. So when Peter says, submit to those who are even unjust, this brings another question. Does God enjoy our suffering? Verse 19, 
The Bible says here, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This, this word gracious in verse 19, this is a gracious thing. It's, it's a word that means to find favor. It's a word that means this is beautiful. So let me read it again in that way. For this is a beautiful thing. For this is a thing that finds favor when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. If we read that out of context, we can make this sound as if God enjoys our suffering. But I think there are some, some clues in the passage that tell us how God feels. Verse 18, servants, be, un, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Verse 19, while suffering unjustly. And here's what I would say to you. I think this is the, the clues are pointing to this, that when you or, or I suffer unjustly under a wicked master or boss or professor or fill in the blank, God takes no pleasure in our suffering for suffering's sake. He calls it unjust. We know that he is the God of justice, that he is holy, that he cannot stand what is unholy, that he will punish all evil and he will make everything right. Verse 20 reveals how God really feels when it says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What God is saying is, if you've sinned and pay the price for your sin, you got what was coming to you. God is not enjoying suffering for suffering's sake. He's saying this unjust suffering, I don't take joy in that, I don't take pleasure in that. What God is saying is that he takes no joy in our suffering. He hates what is happening, but our willingness to endure it for his sake is beautiful to him. That when you and I on this side of eternity look at the suffering that we are in and we, we look around and we say, God, this is unjust. I don't deserve this. God, I've, I've not done what they've said I've done. Lord, I don't know why they treat me this way. God doesn't look down and say, yeah, because I take a little pleasure in that. God's not like that cat that brings you a present to your door and to your door and that mouse or that bird is not quite all the way dead. God's not like that cat that, that when it starts to scamper away, thinking the cat has, has looked away, just reaches out with that paw and drags it back. That's not God. God says, I have to take no pleasure in that. But when you, in the midst of your suffering, Instead of looking around at your suffering and cursing the suffering and cursing the one who causes you to suffer, when you look around, not at them, but you look up at me and say, God, for your sake, Lord, help me to endure. Help me to submit. God says that's beautiful. Let me illustrate this with, with a, a story I came across this week about a little girl named Ruby. Ruby was a little black girl who grew up in the mid-1960s in Mississippi. Not exactly the best time to grow up in Mississippi as a little black girl. The civil rights movement was blowing up in the United States. The Supreme Court had ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional. And overnight in the Deep South, schools had to integrate. 
And in this one particular school in Mississippi, uh, there was this little girl named Ruby. She was seven or eight years old. When she first showed up at this school, there were riots. All of the white parents pulled all their kids out of school, and they showed up at the gates every day with, with signs, and they protested, and they yelled all these things. They yelled hatred every day. They shouted hate at Ruby as she walked into school. She was the only little black girl to show up. It took a squadron of federal marshals to, to escort Ruby in every day and escort her out every day. It took a squadron of U.S. marshals to protect this little seven or eight-year-old girl from these enraged, swearing, angry, bitter, cursing adults. This little girl. For a whole year, she was taught by this one Christian teacher who braved the protest and braved the lines. A Harvard psychiatrist got wind of Ruby and how she was the only girl who was now going to this school and how she walked by these protests every single day. And this Harvard psychiatrist wanted to find out what this would do to this little girl. And so this Harvard psychiatrist went to Mississippi and watched Ruby day after day. She got to know her parents, uh, found out they were godly Christians, nothing special about them. They worked hard. They were just godly Christians. And one day, as the psychiatrist is watching Ruby walk into the school, she watches all the hatred, just like it is every single day, these adults standing on the other side of the fences, yelling hate at this little seven- or eight-year-old little girl. She watched Ruby stop. And it seemed that she was, she was saying something to one of the marshals, and then she went on into school. Later on, the psychiatrist approached Ruby and she said, Ruby, what, what did you say to the marshal? And Ruby said, I wasn't talking to the marshal. And the psychiatrist said, you weren't? And she said, oh, no, I was talking to God. And the psychiatrist said, you were talking to God? What did you say? And Ruby said, well, my parents have always taught me to pray for my enemies. And this morning I was so busy when I left the house that I forgot. And so when I was walking into school this morning and they began to yell at me, I was reminded. And so I said to God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's the point here is that God looks on us and our suffering and when we say, God, this is too hard. This is too much. I don't deserve this. But Lord, for your sake, for your own glory, God, help me to submit so that you might be glorified. Make me less. Make you more. This is beautiful to God. God says this is beautiful. And the reason that, that we're told that it's beautiful is given to us in verse 21. Verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And Paul agrees and, and reveals the attitude that Christians should have about suffering, that when we suffer, we're following in Jesus' steps because he's given us this example and we've been called to this. And Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For it has been, hear the word, granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. 
This is the granting of God. This is a gift of God. And sometimes we look at this and we say, thanks but no thanks, God. I don't want that gift. I'd just as soon not suffer, God. I would just as soon have an easy life, God. Lord, let me believe in you without having to suffer for you. But God says that it's a gift. It is a gracious thing that he allows us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and suffer on his behalf. In Philippians 3.10, Paul goes on and says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. So how? How do we? This is the third question that I would ask, the third main driving question, and this is where I'll kind of close things out today. How do we suffer like Jesus then? Rephrase that question and say, how do we get to the point where we can see our suffering as a gift from God? I think the whole point of this particular passage, these verses 18 through 25 that Peter brings us to today, I think the whole point is, is this. You're in exile. You will come up against suffering. So suffer like Jesus. How do we do that? How can we follow in his steps, as verse 21 says? How can we follow his example? That word example in verse 21, when it says Jesus has left us an example, that word was used to elementary school kids. Would, would, they would put before them the, um, the alphabet and paper, and they would lay this tracing paper over top of it, and they would trace over the letters to be able to learn how to write and their, their alphabet. And this is what's being said to us is that look at Jesus. Lay the pattern of Jesus' life down before you and trace your life over it. How do we do that? I mean, when when things are coming up against you and it is awful and you don't deserve it, how do we do that? Three things. By committing no sin. You say, well, that's easier said than done, Pastor. Well, verses 22 through 23 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When someone is mistreating us, is it sometimes the hardest thing in the world for us to control our tongues? What's the first thing you want to do? Oh, yeah? (laughs) Right? For me, it happens on the road. Last week, I, I shared with you the example, the illustration of, of uh, you know, not speeding. And somebody came out afterwards and said, yeah, I appreciate you getting all over my toes, you know, about, you know, the whole obeying the speed limit thing. And, uh, you know, I tried it this week. I, I tried this week to, to just set my cruise control on the speed limit and just, just do it, you know, because I have road rage. And part of my road rage is because I'm always in a hurry. And I'm one of these people that will ride up behind someone and want them to get out of my way. This world exists for me. Everybody knows this. Move over, right? That's, that's my attitude, right? So this week I tried. I set my cruise control on, on the speed limit and just thought, this is an act of worship. I'll get there when I get there. Do you know how hard that is? Number one, you find out you've got to leave a little earlier. Number two, there's a whole lot of people that had the mindset that I have that would all of a sudden on my butt, right? And number three... My wife's over there saying, this is driving me nuts. Why are you driving so slow? Right? (laughs) 
Sometimes one of the hardest things for us to do is to control our tongue when we're receiving this unjust suffering. And these people pulling up on right on my bumper and everything in me saying, I'll just slam the brakes on. Right? I'm talking to them in the rearview mirror like they can hear me. Where are you going? What do you want me to do? You know, I'm just, I'm saying these things. Isn't this, I mean, am I the only one? One of the hardest things for us to do sometimes is to commit no sin. Someone's mistreating us, we we want to revile, we want to threaten. Sometimes we even lie, we deceive, we twist our words to avoid their wrath, or we twist our words to paint them in a negative light. And Jesus models for us committing no sin. Deidre came earlier and she read from Isaiah 53 and verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Oh, hail, King of the Jews. Prophesy, who struck you on the head? He opened not his mouth. If anyone could could lay claim, oh God, I don't deserve this. Was it not Jesus? The one who was perfectly without sin? How can we suffer like Jesus? By committing no sin. Secondly, by continually entrusting oneself to the one who judges justly. This is what it says in verse 23. It says that he did this, that he was able to not commit sin because he continually entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Tom Schreiner in his commentary said, the urge for revenge can be almost unbearable when mistreatment takes place. In the ancient world, people demonstrated their innocence by arguing passionately against their accusers. When I read that this week from Tom, from Tom Schreiner, I just said out loud in my study, Tom, it's not just in the ancient world. That's what people do now. I'm innocent. I'm going to get loud and tell you about it. I'm innocent. I'm going to defend myself. Some things haven't changed. This is what we all do. But then Tom Schreiner goes on and he says, hence Jesus' silence reveals his confidence in God's vindication. What Tom, Tom Schreiner's point was is that Jesus kept over and over handing himself over to God in every dimension of his life, including the fate of his enemies. And when Jesus is nailed to the cross, having committed no sin of his own, and the crowd is hurling insults at him, if you're really the Christ, save yourself. You've saved others. Come down from there. They're just hurling these insults. They're gambling for his clothing and and personal effects at the foot of the cross. And Jesus looks at them all and says, God, you judge justly. God, I entrust them to you. I entrust my fate to you. I entrust them to you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The best practice is not to be the bigger man. This is something that all of us have heard all of our lives probably. When someone gets in your face, when someone reviles you, 
you be the bigger man, right? Now, maybe you didn't have that advice. I had that advice a lot, or maybe you've heard that advice. The best practice is not to be the bigger man. The best practice is to trust in the one who is bigger than any man. In that moment, to say, God, I'm going to entrust my soul to you. I know you judge justly. There will be no wrong that will escape your sight. You will make all things right. Lord, I trust myself to you. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Again, he's speaking in this case to servants, to slaves. Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality with God. What this means for us is you don't have to be judge, jury, and executioner because God has that covered. We suffer like Jesus by committing no sin, by continually entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. And third, by living in light of the atonement. By living in light of the atonement, by continuing to turn that light on. If you have kids in your house, you have teenagers in your house, you will repeatedly go into rooms and you will say, how'd this light get back on? I just turned this light off, right? This is a light, (laughs) yes, right? This is a light that we need to continually turn on in our lives. Live in light of the atonement. Just flip that thing on and remind yourself of it, right? Oh, uh, yeah, oh. Live in light of the atonement. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That, purpose clause, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is that part of his example that we are never going to be called to follow. In this part of the example, we're never going to be able to trace our lives over because there has only ever been one and there ever only will be one who has atoned for our sins. Jesus Christ, the only one that was positioned rightly, even qualified to bear our sins on the tree. He had no sin of his own, but he took our sin on himself. He bore our sins. The Bible here says, by his wounds we have been healed. This means that he took our place and he bore the full wrath of God against us. The Bible says that he drank that entire cup of the wrath that was reserved for our sins. That when he got to the bottom, that he didn't leave the grainy stuff. He didn't leave the dregs in the cup. That he just absolutely cleaned the cup out and drank the dregs and all. All the wrath for you in Christ is gone. Flip that light on. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation against those who are in Christ. What a glorious light that is. Live in that light. The penalty is gone. Oh, death, where's your victory? Where is your sting? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, those who are his followers will also be raised from the dead. Death can't contain us. Death is no no thing to be feared. It's nothing to be dreaded. 
We, we look at death and we laugh because we know that death is simply a doorway that we go through to be with Him in eternity in bodily form forever. The penalty is gone. The power is gone. He clothes me with power to do what is right. We sang that this morning. Romans 6, 6-7, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This means you and I have the power to live obediently. We don't, we don't play the doormat for Satan. Oh, hey Satan, go ahead and wipe your feet on me. Just wear me out with those temptations because you know that I can't, I can't take it. I don't have anything. I just can't stand up to you. No. God says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Live in light of this atonement. The purpose of the atonement is that we would live very different lives. There are two sides in this passage that we would die to sin and that we would live to righteousness. So that means every day we get up and we decide, I'm not, I'm not, Lord, by your power, keep me from temptation today. Lead me away from evil today, God. I don't want to be anywhere near it. I'm going to take steps to where I'm not around it. And we say no. We die to it. We consider ourselves. We reckon ourselves. That's Romans 6, 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Reckon it. Some of you use cash. I'm, some of you use cash instead of credit cards or debit cards because you know that, that plastic, it's a whole lot easier just to swipe that thing and, hey, you, know, you might have money, you might not, right? You use cash because you know how much is there. When that cash is gone, it's gone. Some of you need to say, look, I'm going to just envelope this thing and I'm going to use cash in my life and here's what the Bible says. I have this and I don't have this. I'm dead to sin. I don't have any. Ring it up all you want, Satan, because I can't buy it. I'm dead to it, right? We reckon ourselves that way. We live to righteousness. We get up every day and we say, God, I, I want to linger with you. I want to spend time in your word. Lord, I want to see the people that you put in my path. God, I want you to put words in my mouth so that I can share the gospel freely and openly and winsomely to them. Lord, I want to, I want to be kind and gracious to others. Lord, I want to be pleasing in your sight. Lord, not because I'm earning anything, but Lord, because you call me righteous. Lord, help me to live in that righteousness. So here's the conclusion of all of this. As I studied this week, these, this, this issue just drove me nuts. But the more I got into it, I realized that this is more about suffering than anything. And all of us suffer in different ways. We suffer uh, with uh, bad bosses and harsh professors and all sorts of things in our lives. Here, here's the conclusion. We cannot be too hasty to treat these weekly passages as isolated and unconnected. Last week I spoke about uh, you know, submitting to governing authorities. And we, we, sometimes we, we take that and we just say, okay, that's done. We relegate that. We put it away. And then we jump over here and we think that, that that's the way Peter wrote as he wrote these things. They're just nice little segments and they're just like, you know, encyclopedias or, or well, I just dated myself there. Uh, it, it, all those things, right? 
That's not the way the Bible is. Having just walked through verses 18 through 25 concerning submission as slaves to unjust masters, I would say to you that perhaps now we are in a better place this week to see and understand verse 16 that we covered last week. Verse 16, live as people who are free. Even in, even in circumstances of your exile where you aren't free, where you're living as a slave, where you're suffering unjustly, Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That word servants, slaves. We can submit to earthly, exiled, just or unjust, slave masters here, because ultimately we know that we are slaves of the best the most righteous, the only just and wise God. He is our master. Jeff Ashley wrote this. I'll close this quote. Jeff Ashley said, Slavery is a universal principle of creation. All creatures are confined to some being or principle. There's no escape from enslavement, no existence in which absolute autonomy and unlimited independence are obtained. All creatures are ultimately enslaved, either to sin, Satan and fleshly desires, or to the true God and King, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. True freedom is not found in independence from our Creator, but rather in subjection to His sovereignty. There is no lasting liberty apart from captivity to Christ. And that is true. Submit yourselves Slaves, to your masters, with all respect, those who treat you well and those who are unjust because you know that ultimately you are owned not by them, but by Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that you are our master, that today we come into this place not out of just routine or habit or some sort of ritual, Lord, but we are here because you have bought us. That you have bought us not with something as fleeting and passing as, and as corruptible as silver or gold, but, Lord, you have bought us with, with the precious blood of Christ. God, I pray that that would dictate the way that we approach, Lord, our governing authorities, those that have master duties over us, God, that it would, it would just affect every area of our lives, Lord, that when we suffer in this life, Lord, that we would see it as an opportunity, Lord, to be your servant. Lord, that we would see it as an opportunity, Lord, to lay down your life, Jesus, and trace ourselves over you. Lord, I pray that in this time as we reflect and respond, God, that you would speak to us clearly. Lord, that perhaps in just the solitude of just quiet music playing, Lord, that you might speak clearly and more loudly than ever. Lord, that there might be people here today that come to know you as Savior and Lord. Lord, there might be someone here today that is suffering in the moment, about to give up and just at the point of wanting to retaliate and God that you have called them to 
repent of that and to turn back to you and to trust in you, to continually entrust themselves to the one who judges justly. Lord, perhaps there are people here today that, Lord, they're like me and, and they so quickly and so easily spout off. They revile when they are reviled. They threaten. God, I pray that today, Lord, that you might move and that you might bring us to a point of repentance, Lord, that we might turn away from that, Lord, that we might continually entrust ourselves to you. Lord, show us, show us our need for you. And then by faith, Lord, help us to receive you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.